This show discusses sensitive material relating to mental health, which some people may find triggering. If anything is distressing, please reach out for help. All right, we're on it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Kick a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Welcome back, you beautiful animals, to another episode of the Mitch Wallace podcast. Uh, we're here to help you feel understood so that you can lead a healthier and happier life. This episode is brought to you by my charity, Heart on My Sleeve. We have a range of programs that will help you speak about how you feel or support someone through a tough time. Our main program being Real Conversations, which can take anyone, no matter their experience with psychology or support or caring, and get them to a level of competence and confidence to help someone through times of emotional distress. It's an amazing program. I've authored it. If you want to support the podcast, support the charity. By doing so, you just go to heartonmysleeve.org. And there's a ton of resources there that you can engage with. This episode is also brought to you by Calm Water. That's a supplement that my co-founder and I developed because I was looking for the ultimate relaxation supplement and I couldn't find it anywhere on the market. I wanted something that had the right ingredients at the right amount that was taken in drink form as opposed to a pill or tablet that felt really clinical And I also wanted something that would take the edge off without putting me to sleep, which is what we call functional relaxation, which we've been able to achieve through that product. If you want to know more and buy a pack, go to calmwater.org. That's C-A-L-M-W-A-T-E-R.org and get yourself a packet. Today's guest, I'm incredibly stoked to have on board. Her name is Danielle Miller. She is freaking awesome. She's a leading expert in domestic and family violence. This episode is the ultimate education, especially for men, in how to be a male ally, but is also incredibly relevant to women who may or may not be experiencing domestic violence situations. Why I wanted to interview Danielle is because the rates of DV are just so alarmingly high and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to play my small role in helping to eradicate this, I don't want to use the word epidemic or pandemic because it's so overused at the moment, but when you when you hear the numbers, which you will in this episode, you will just feel compelled to want to make a difference and we need all the help we can get in eliminating this from our society. Danielle is an OAM medal winner, so for those that aren't Australian or are familiar with the Order of Australian Medal, it's kind of the ultimate recognition that we have here uh, for outstanding achievement and service. It was established by Queen Elizabeth II and Danielle has received that for her service to women, education and youth. She's also the Director of Education and Special Projects at Women's Community Shelters 
where she created the Walk and Talk program for schools and also now running in corporates, which she's delivered to the likes of KPMG. She's presented at the Sydney Opera House twice. She's the co-founder of Enlightened Education, Australia's leading provider of in-school workshops for teens since 2003. She's a parenting expert and gets called on her advice on national television programs for many years, and she's authored five books. What you'll learn is pretty much everything you'll need to know around the stats and figures for domestic and family violence, the warning signs and what to look out for in someone who might be going through it, how to support someone when they're in that, what to do if you see this happening, and also what to do if you see yourself in any of these things. And as I refer to in the episode for men, I really, really encourage you put the pride and the shame and the guilt away and let this message in as much as you can. If all you can do is become a 1% better man or a 1% better person as a result of this episode, then our mission has been achieved for this hour. I'd also like to flag a few support numbers if any of this is triggering and or relevant to you. That includes 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-737-732, QLIFE, 1-800-184-527, Kids Helpline for anyone 25 and under, 1-800-55-1800, and Men's Referral Service, 1-300-766-491, and of course, womenscommunityshelters.org.au, which Danielle is a big part of. A lot of those resources are Australian, so if you're not based in this country, I would encourage you to Google and research and look out for any resources uh, in your local area that can provide you the support that you deserve. So with that, I'd like to welcome Danielle. And as always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We are all on the journey. How are you feeling out of 10 this morning? I would give myself a solid seven, which I'm okay with. What about you? I would give myself... An 8.5 today. That's nice. And I like the preciseness of this. I know. Well, I feel like reflecting on on the state of your mind often, man, I do it way too much, I think. Uh, But the scale out of 10 gives it a little bit of softness as opposed to like, oh, am I feeling low or gloomy or blah, blah, blah. What what do you think your life average out of 10 has been mood-wise? I think I am very fortunate to be a 8.5 to a 9. Yeah, I am just, I am an optimist and I do have a strong sense of my own capabilities, my own resilience and a strong sense that I can make change, which is probably why I choose to work in some fairly dark areas and they don't get me down. I actually feel really inspired by the work. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about the work, Danny, the work being, um, well, let's talk about my intention for this talk. Good. So as I told you on the call, uh, before we got on here, I was made aware by a friend of mine that domestic and family violence has been on the rise post COVID. And during COVID, we saw an enormous spike. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was really unsettling because never is it acceptable but I could um, get some 
type of insight and at least piece the puzzles together in in understanding this evil being like okay everyone's indoors together there's some conflict and nothing makes this right but hopefully it's going to go away after and when it didn't go away that made me think wow I feel a huge sense of responsibility to learn and um, hear from experts like yourself uh, Mm. to try and empower more male allyship so that at very least we don't make the problem worse Mm. and at very best we can do what we can to eradicate and end up in a world with zero percent family and domestic violence. So Mm. um, my job is to listen and be curious today Uh, and if at any point I don't uh, I'm not like that. You can tell me, I just need you to stop and listen, which I think is probably going to be one of your messages today is stop and listen, I would imagine. It will be, yeah. Can I provide you some context for some of the... Um, Love the, context. Yeah, for some of the situation you just described, actually. You are quite right that we saw a dramatic increase in domestic and family violence during COVID lockdown. And some of the reason that for that is simply that people couldn't escape. So often we might find our workplaces are really our safe place. Are we visiting our friends? We're visiting our family. We're visiting our sports clubs. So all of that was stripped away from people. And as you Mm. rightly said, you know, there was this pressure cook environment. Um, We had people who were really financially insecure. We know that drinking dramatically increased during that time. Things like gambling increased. So that's what caused the dramatic rise or or some of the reasons um, for, for that dramatic rise that we saw during COVID time. And in fact, just recently, a survey came out two weeks ago that indicated that in New South Wales alone, Mitch, during that it's COVID lockdowns in 2020, 40,000 people, sorry, 60,000 women experienced domestic violence for the first time. 60,000 New South Wales alone in 2020 experienced domestic violence in their homes for the first time. A third of 45%, uh, sorry, 45,000 actually found the violence they were already experiencing escalated during that period. So you're right that it was on a rise. But what was challenging for organisations like the one that I work with, Women's Community Shelters, is that, of course, we couldn't access people. They couldn't call us for help. They couldn't reach out because the perpetrator was in the home. So actually during those COVID lockdowns, we did receive some calls for support and women wanting to flee their homes to stay safe. And there were, of course, COVID exceptions so that that could happen. But actually we didn't have a dramatic increase in people wanting to come to our shelters because they just couldn't access the service. So why we're now seeing an increase isn't necessarily that the violence has increased, it's that the reporting is now possible, that women are now in a position where they can reach out and they can access support services and say, hey, I've been experiencing this for the last few years, I need to break a break here or how do I how do I move on safely? Yeah. Okay, so it is that there's been an underbelly of problem for a long time Uh, but since COVID has passed and they're in more of a safe space to be able to report that effectively, we're seeing the numbers represent reality. Yeah, correct. Something that you just said then, you know, really resonates with me when you said that that we've had high rates of domestic and family violence for a long time in Australia, Mm. and we so have, and I find that personally enraging. You know, Mm. I remember sitting there, one of the many 
jobs that I've had over the years has been to be a newspaper columnist. And I used to write for the Daily Telegraph for three years on a Saturday. And I found myself sitting there one day about to write yet another column about a woman who had lost her life at the hands of a man who once professed to love her. And I felt uncharacteristically for me, no optimism. I just felt fury, like this blinding rage and also despair, which isn't an emotion I usually experience thinking we are talking about this constantly and nothing is changing. You know, we need to move beyond talk. And as is often the case, mm. when you have these realisations, the universe conspired for me to not just talk about this but to act on it. And so I saw in my local papers that there was going to be a meeting um, in our community with the aim of establishing a shelter for women and children fleeing violence. So I went across to that meeting put my hand up and joined and helped found a refuge in my local area called The Sanctuary, which has now been open for five years. Um, and for me, you know, that was a really profound thing to move from the emotion that perhaps some of your listeners are experiencing to action on the issue. And I mm. think, I, I know we're going to talk more and I'm probably jumping the gun a little bit, but if, if I can um have one key message that people listening to us will take it is that hear this sit in this but please act on this you know do something positive and constructive because I am an optimist and I believe that we can make changes and we just have to the statistics are so damning um that we have to look at this with a more critical lens and with a lens towards change Yes, I totally agree. And one of the reasons why things don't change is that people get stuck in shame. Yes. Uh, shame is an emotion that has good intention. It's designed to keep our behavior in line with the social tribe that we are living in. However, just like all medicine being poison, depending on the dosage, shame can be the cloak that binds us to a narrative that's too painful to move away from. So if, for example, a male is listening to this, and as we get into some of the more tactical things around, well, what is it and have you done it before and what do you do about it? I think a lot of men go, oh, I think I see even a little bit of myself in some of what you're explaining, and that's going to bring up a lot of shame and guilt and therefore, I'm going to go, no, that's not me. Deny, deny, deny. You're wrong. You're the problem. And then we're going to get further in. So my ask, particularly for men listening to this today is let whatever emotions need to hit, hit, but don't let it keep you where you are. What, what can you do to make yourself 1% more of a safe man and a male ally um, than what you are before listening to this? And what I also will caveat so that people don't tune out straight away, and I want your opinion on this. I've heard a lot of men ask me, uh, why is it that the world is trying to make us less masculine? Why are they trying to soften us up to the point of being feminine? And my response is, I think the world is trying to make us more masculine, but qualities in which we need to get there, like courage and vulnerability, the strongest things you can do is act even when you're scared. Mm. They are typically called feminine, but it's actually incredibly brave. So what do you think we can do to help men be fully masculine, but also be safe? 
that's a really complex question and you hit on a lot of things that I would um that sort of flagged conversations that I'd want to have with you firstly I do get really frustrated when men arc up about this issue and use phrases like you know why are they trying to change us or what why are they questioning us or not all men you know to me those kind of disclaimers really miss the mark because of course it's not all men you know um and of course there's nothing wrong with um masculinity as such but the elements of masculinity that are harming males um in their relationships with women are also harming males in their relationship with themselves and with each other right so when it comes to physical violence for example we know in australia that males are actually more likely than females to experience physical violence statistically one in two males in australia will experience physical violence in their lifetime and one in three females but here's the key difference mitch when males experience physical violence you know the 90% of cases the perpetrator is another male you know, the 90% of cases when women experience physical violence, the perpetrator is a current or former lover. And when males experience physical violence, it's usually in a public place. So at a nightclub, at a sporting match, coming home from an event. When females experience physical violence, in over 60% of cases, it happens in their own home, right, which should be their safe place. Yes. So I don't think it does men any favours to bury their head in the sand and say there's nothing to see here, we don't have any problems. Um, you know, we do. If you look at the impact of the patriarchy, because that's what it is, it's not men, it's patriarchal beliefs, which we need to question, not masculine beliefs. You know, the patriarchy says to men, don't express emotion, don't express vulnerability, don't cry. Well, what price do our men pay for that? We have high suicide rates. We have high depression, anxiety, problem-making relationships. So those beliefs aren't serving males either. And we need to really question and call this out. You know, I remember my son saying to me once, it's really frustrating, mum, when people sort of go, oh, not all men, because when I hear things about men behaving badly, I don't take it personally because I know they're not talking about me. I've never done those things. But I know that guys like that do exist. I see them all the time in my classroom, in my workplace, you know. So the first thing that I think that, that men need to do is to be honest and open about looking at these issues and realising no one's personally questioning them. What we are questioning is patriarchal beliefs that don't serve them any longer. I agree. What... Uh... What I find interesting is understanding where do we get our understanding of what being a good man, man looks like? Yeah. Where did that come from? Where did that originate? Is it true, helpful and accurate? Is it serving okay. where we want to take the male image moving forward? Yeah. Um, and so what, in your opinion, is a strong man? It's not about physical strength or that alpha male thing or the six pack. It's really about moral courage. It's really about the courage to do what's right, even if no one's watching or if, as you say, it scares you. It's really about the strength to be yourself, to live authentically. Um, to me, that's genuine um, strength and it's admirable and it's something that we need more of. What I've been loving doing in my work with 
young young people. So when I work for women's community shelters, I work in the education space, which is probably why I managed to remain fairly optimistic about change because I see the best. I see the best of young women. I see the best of young men. Um, and the boys we work with, you know, they want to be part of a change. They want to question these beliefs that don't serve them and don't serve relationship. And they want to be told how to do things better because you're right, the scripts we've been fed from a young age have been incredibly damaging. I mean, let's just look for a moment, you know, simplistically at the story of Beauty and the Beast. What does that tell us about relationship, Mitch? We are told that beauty, actually named, because what else should a female be other than a decorative object, is literally kidnapped by the beast, taken from her family, forced into his castle where she'll cook and clean and hang out with candles. Um, and it's her job to love him despite his rage, despite his beastly behaviour, to see past that abuse. And if she can, she'll be transformed into the handsome prince. You know, what a destructive message about mm. the nature of relationship and about the nature of um, the female's role in a relationship with a partner who's abusive. You know, we are not your therapy, you know. We're, yeah, uh, and I think for both partners in a relationship, what's an important psychological point here is that uh, projecting all of your insecurities onto your partner that you haven't already dealt with is not okay, whether that be a woman onto a man or man onto a woman uh, or non-binary, of course, as well. But opting out of doing the hard work and introspectively going, hey, where could I show up better? Where am I creating unnecessary conflict? Where am I insecure and that's rubbing people the wrong way and actually harming others? I think that's an oath that we need to take to be strong. And so like, you know, speaking as a man, I think a strong man has the balls to go toward hard topics that make you feel uncomfortable with a sense of openness and I want to do better. Mm. Yeah, agreed. And we have to do better, as I said. I mean, statistics aren't okay. Um, and there is definitely a gendered pattern to violence and abuse. So it's definitely true that males can be um, victim survivors as well. So when it comes mm -hmm. to emotional abuse, for example, we know one in seven males will report emotional abuse in their relationship, one in four females. Um, when it comes to sexual abuse, one in 22 males, one in five females. It's important to note, though, when it comes to sexual abuse of males, you know, the 90% of cases the perpetrator is another male. So there are gendered patterns of abuse that we need to call out and question. And there are definitely um, ways in which we've been raised, which we need to question and to, to reconsider and to create new narratives for. Um, and we do need to do the work on ourselves when we come into a relationship, not expect our partner to fix us or to be responsible for how we manage our own mood. But we need to question beyond that too, you know, structures and systems that reinforce power dynamics, that reinforce privilege um, and open up that discussion. And it, it isn't just also, as you sort of alluded to, this isn't just also a straight issue. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, Mitch, is that so often in Australia, our conversation around domestic and family violence seems to have this heteronormative face where we mm. assume that it's through heterosexual couples. 
But we know that actually members of the LGBTQIA community are just as likely to experience relationship abuse. And so we need wow. to be really open. Yeah, so we need to be really open to that conversation. In fact, members of the trans community are more likely to experience relationship abuse. So we need to make sure that in our discussions we're really inclusive and we understand that this can happen to anyone regardless of gender, sexuality, importantly, regardless of where you live, postcode, regardless of socioeconomic background. Um, and that's been a super interesting thing for me in the last two years working with corporates at a really senior level because I do think sometimes we can assume, well, this might be happening to someone else somewhere else, perhaps in mm. those socioeconomically disadvantaged suburbs, you know, over the hill, but not here in my leafy middle-class suburb or in my powerful boardroom. And that's not accurate at all, right? So this can happen to anyone regardless of education and, in fact, or, or regardless of wealth and privilege. Um, and, in fact, one of the things that was really interesting was before participants would come in to my my training sessions with corporates, we'd ask them about their lived experience with this issue. And on average, in every session, we found 40% of people would say, I haven't experienced this personally and I don't know anyone else that has, but I'm interested, that's why I'm here. And Mitch, what was really fascinating is that when I would go through and explain what are the signs, what are the forms, the lights would go on. And they would realise, oh, wow, actually, I do know someone who's experiencing this. And in fact, Mitch, and I'm really proud of this because this is literally life-saving stuff, I know of at least two participants who have realised this is happening to me, right? Mm. I knew my relationship was challenging, but I didn't fully understand the extent of that or have a name for this, and I need to get out. And then they've been able to go to their workplace, you know, support systems uh, and and work out a plan, work out a safety plan for how to remove themselves. So uh, your work is incredible and I'm, I feel very lucky that I get to speak to you today, particularly for this next part, which is, the, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. What is domestic and family violence to you? Yeah. How can we see it in others? And how do we know if we're experiencing it ourselves? Brilliant questions. And before I um, before I explain that to you, I want to also just mention for any of your listeners who may have lived experience that they might find some of this content distressing. Yeah. Um, and if they do, I would really encourage them, as I know you do in your own sessions, to put on their own oxygen mask first before thinking about helping someone else and reaching out to support services. So can I just mention quickly some of the support services people might want to listen Please. out to? Okay, so you can call 1-800-RESPECT, which is our national hotline, which supports domestic family violence and sexual abuse um, survivors of both genders. QLife, which do excellent work with the LGBTQI community. So if you're a member of that community, you might really want to reach out to someone who is also part of that community who understands you because relationship abuse will impact on you in quite different ways. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Kids Helpline. Now, I know that might seem like a strange thing to call out, but a lot of people don't realise they can take calls from young people up to the age of 25. 
So they think it may be just for little kids who are being bullied, but it isn't. And they will have um, experienced relationship abuse advisors as well. And of course, there's a men's referral service. So I don't want to read all of these numbers out now, but perhaps you might be able to add them on the screen or put them in your show notes or something like that, Mitch, and I'll send them to you so that you can do that. Absolutely. Um, I will say too, that when I'm talking to you about this issue, I am speaking to you as someone who also has lived experience with this issue. So I grew up in a home with a violent dad and I was also the victim of family violence when I was a little girl. I have third degree burns. Um, my great grandmother burnt me. And I know many of your listeners, as I said, will have lived experience too. But I'm calling on the collective wisdom of many of the survivors that I have had the great privilege of interviewing and learning about their stories. And we need to listen to them for so many reasons. One of the reasons is, as you know, Mitch, storytelling is how we shift minds and hearts, right? You know, look at the impact Rosie Batty's story had on a nation, Grace Tame's story. So in creating my corporate program, I was able to interview about a dozen um, professional services um, workers who were able to share their stories with me. And I've done lots of feature writing in the media. I've done two huge cover features for Body and Soul magazine. And so collectively, I've probably interviewed about 25 survivors of family and domestic violence. As I said previously, you know, I've interviewed Indigenous, um, a young Indigenous woman, a woman with a disability. These are groups that we know are at high risk. I've interviewed um, corporate women. I've interviewed a very successful journalist who I can't name, women of colour. So this can happen to any of us. But what are some of the forms of abuse that people experience? Well, some of them we will know and will be really familiar with. Things like physical abuse and emotional abuse, that name calling, that putting, putting down, that belittling. And whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me was an idiot because that stuff can be so incredibly destructive. I remember interviewing the amazing Roya Atmar, um, whose abuse began when she was just 14 and she was in a refugee camp with her family. They arranged for her to be married to a much older man who brought her to Australia. And her abuse began with the belittling, with the financial abuse, um, which I'll talk about more in a minute. And it did escalate into quite extreme physical violence. But you know, Mitch, she shared with me that sometimes the bruises heal but those words, those phrases, that can sometimes become your inner voice and it can take quite some work to heal mm. and recover from. So we mustn't dismiss that type of abuse perhaps as not being as serious because it can be incredibly destructive. Financial abuse I mentioned really quickly. So if you're being financially abused, your partner might be controlling all of the income and they might only give you a small allowance to spend or perhaps they'll go through and audit your bank account and berate you um, if you've spent money on things that they don't see as valuable or important. So I mentioned a journalist, you know, she was earning um, very good money, as was her partner, yet he would go through her bank account and if she'd spent over $15 on lunch, he would fly into a fury and berate her. So she felt that she had no financial independence, even though she was earning good money. If you're being financially abused, perhaps your partner is putting money on joint credit cards without telling you about that. They might be gambling. One of the women that I interviewed lost her entire home because she hadn't realised quite how extreme her partner's gambling problem was and found herself with two little twin babies, you know, sleeping in a car and sleeping on friends' lounges. And she had been a middle-class mum prior to that moment. 
Financial abuse might look like your partner asking you to sign documents and you don't really understand what it is that you're signing off. So you may end up with, you know, STDs, sexually transmitted, uh, sorry, sexually transmitted debt, um, you know, that, that can be a part of that. There can be damage to property, you know, the punching walls, the throwing things. Often perpetrators will say, but, but I've never actually hit her with that. But by gosh, that is so terrifying, right? That activates our entire flight, fright, freeze response. Um, and it can create this atmosphere of deep tension and uncertainty within the home. There might be sexual abuse. And this is important to recognise that this can and does happen in relationship. There was a time not that long ago, Mitch, where it was actually quite legal to sexually assault your partner if you were married because it was considered then that, well, that's, that's, that's your wife. You can have her body whenever you want to have her body. But, of course, we know that's not true at all, that all consent must be enthusiastic. And if we've got time, I can talk to you about enthusiastic consent as well. Um, digital abuse. This is one I see a lot with the teens I work with. So this will be where your partner might insist on having the passwords to all your social media accounts or they might dictate who you can and can't interact with on socials or fly into a fury if they see someone commenting on one of your posts and you might feel really nervous about that. It might be that they use your phone to track you to see where you are at all times or they're texting you 20, 30 times a day asking for updates. So your phone really becomes their tool of surveillance, if you like. Um, there's abuse to pets. So can I say that in 95% of homes where there is a pet and there is relationship abuse, then the partner will make threats to that pet. You know, if you leave, I'll kill the dog. Or during a disagreement, they might threaten to, to kick an animal. And if you're experiencing relationship abuse, you know, often your pet will be a real source of solace for you and connection. And so that can be one of the many reasons why um, those experiencing abuse might feel reluctant to leave or scared to go. Um, and then there's coercive control. And this is such an important one, Mitch. It's harder to sort of pin down. If you have a coercively control partner, then there's a pattern of um, them wanting to isolate you from others. So they might not, you know, they might convince you that your friends aren't good good for you to be around or they're a bad influence or that you shouldn't see your family anymore because they're destructive. And so you find that your world starts to shrink and you become more and more enmeshed with just this one particular person. Mm. Again, they might tell you what you can and can't wear, who you can and can't see, where you can and can't work, that you've got to work from home, you can't go back to the office. Um, I have known coercively controlling partners to put up video cameras in the home so they can watch their partner while they're at work, you know, when they're with the kids and monitor when they do and don't leave the house. The thing with coercive control and what makes it so dangerous is that if you have a highly controlling partner, that actually has the highest correlation with homicide if you leave, even if there's been no physical violence before right? So we might have a woman who will come to our shelter and we'll go through a list and try and ascertain what's been happening. And we might say to them, does your partner tell you what you can and can't wear? Has your partner ever told you that you can't see particular friends? Does your partner ask, um, track you or ask you to report in on an app? And so all of these are signs of a coercively controlling partner. And then they might say, but you know, I, I can't live like this anymore. I want to get away. And we might say, do you think you'd be safe to get away? And they might say, well, I think so, because they've never physically hurt me before. 
And we'll have to point out to them that the research shows in cases where there's high coercive control, that partner is likely to explode if you try and break that control. And that's what we saw happen to Hannah Clark, that beautiful Queensland mum who was murdered by her ex-husband and who also murdered his own children. He set fire to the car they were all in and then took his own life. He'd been highly coercively controlling. He hadn't physically hit her before. She didn't realise she'd be so at risk when she was attempting to leave that relationship. You might have a partner who gaslights you. So if your partner's gaslighting you, that's a form of emotional manipulation where they try and change the narrative. So they might say things to you like, what do you mean, you know, I was awful to you last night? You Mm. always exaggerate, you know. Why do you want to make trouble all the time? Or they might say to you, if perhaps you have mental health issues, have you taken your medication? Because lately you just seem more anxious. I think you really need to speak to your therapist. You know, you're exaggerating how bad things are here or I think you're getting paranoid. That type of gaslighting behaviour can be so unsettling because you start to question, am I right? Am I the problem? You know, Um, and it can be really destructive. So these are all forms of relationship abuse, domestic violence, family violence, and they tend to correlate and they tend to escalate. So it might begin with emotional abuse and then it might ramp up and the coercive control may become more dominant and then there may be elements of physical abuse as well. There can also be reproductive abuse where your partner tells you what form of contraception you can and can't use or if you get pregnant, you know, insist that you have the child or insist you terminate the child. Um, And there can be spiritual and cultural abuse and that's more where someone's spiritual beliefs or their cultural background is used as an excuse for the abuse. So in the case of the um, brilliant Roya Atmar, who I mentioned before, her her husband at the time was Muslim and he would say to her, you know, I'm not abusive, this is just our culture. The man is meant to be the head of the household. And she would rightly say, now I know that's not true, that's a manipulation of our faith. Yes, it's true that the man should be the head of the household, but that doesn't mean that he gets to be abusive or destructive. That means that he should be loving and caring and respectful and create a safe home for his house. Yeah. So it's a little bit like what you referred to before, isn't it? About how people can say, well, it's just masculinity. People are questioning masculinity. That's a manipulation of what it really means to be a man. There's nothing about being a man that means that you should be destructive to yourself or to those around you, you know? And we need to call this stuff out. Great definitions. And I think for a lot of people, it's eye-opening to understand that DV isn't just hitting. It is a whole range. And the word that really stuck out for me is control. Control seems to be at the hub of all these spokes in DV where someone tries to take someone's power away from them. In fact, um, if you were to ask a woman to ask, or a man, to um, reflect on if they are experiencing domestic violence, what would the question be? Am I in a DV relationship because, can you finish that sentence? No, because it's not that simple. So it's it's probably a lot of the things that I've just mentioned. So, I mean, I guess simplistic, you could say, do I feel safe around this partner? Do I feel safe with this person? Do I feel that I can be my authentic self with this person? Do I feel that this person has my best interests at heart? But it, it, it's 
it's it's not simple, I guess, because relationships don't tend to be simple and the patterns of abuse we're talking about aren't really simple either. Mm. Um, and as I said to you, you, you're right that we do have this perception that it's all about the physical abuse. And if, in fact, what's, what's an interesting exercise is, is if you Google domestic violence and look at the images that will pop up, it will be the sorts of images that are often used as stock images in news reports. And it will usually be a woman cowering in the corner and then a man with a raised fist. And again, it perpetuates that myth that if you don't hit them, it's not abuse. You know, I've had perpetrators say to me, Mitch, yes, yes, I do put her down and I get angry and I throw things. And yes, I don't, you know, I, I don't like her wearing those slutty clothes, but I've never raised a fist to her. I've never raised a hand to her as if that makes everything else okay, right? Um, and, and so we need to call out that it is much more than just that. That is one form of abuse, but certainly not the only form of abuse. I agree. I, I think what I want to do is move away from people listening to this and thinking, you know, that the shame kicks in and then we go black and white. Oh, well, I guess breathing is abuse these days. Everything sounds to be abuse. And it's like, no, actually, that's not true. Let's come back to an accessible definition, which is, are you making someone feel unsafe? Mm. Um, and so I guess, how would you, in mm. or less than, so mm. how would you encourage uh, perpetrators of abuse unknowingly or knowingly um, and or victims of abuse to understand is this normal relationship stuff or is this violence before i do can i just um can i just flag one thing you've just said that mm. i think is important too because it, it contributes to us understanding more about this issue we tend to stick away from using the phrase victim of abuse and that's because when you hear the word victim it has connotations of being weak perhaps or of being vulnerable or cowering and that's so often um, actually a deterrent to coming forward because no one wants mm -hmm. to think of themselves as a victim. So the preferred terminology, and this is something that we listen to survivors about, is a survivor or a victim survivor or those with lived experience. And all of those have connotations of strength, of resilience and of courage. And um, so I think that's really important to acknowledge I'm so glad you called me out on that. Um, I'm uh, calling you out. Hopefully it's no, 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 it's good. Yeah. No, 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 it it's good. You in. And that's one of the th other things I would say to your listeners. This, this um, is such a nuanced area, right? And we don't know what we don't know. And that's one of the things when I go in and talk to corporates that I say is, I think, Mitch, you're so brave for having this conversation because you know that you don't know everything and you think, what if I get this wrong? And so what happens is we become so scared that we might we might accidentally, inadvertently say the wrong thing that we say nothing, right? And we can't say nothing anymore. So we have to be brave and courageous. And even if we don't always get it right, be gently open to being called in, not called out. I hate call out culture, right? Because I think it cool. just makes people, it just makes people shut down and, and refuse to engage with um, areas like this one that are really nuanced and complex. And so I far prefer to call people in and just gently explain because you don't know. And once we know better, we do better. So Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be called in on that terminology and, and I agree it's, it's much more true and empowering uh, yeah. to call someone a, a survivor. So yeah. coming back to the question, normal versus not, how do we tell? In, in relationships? 
to yeah. to help someone understand, is this just normal relationship stuff or am I in a domestic violence relationship right now? I think if any of the things I just mentioned are happening, that, then that's a huge flag that your relationship is not is not healthy, right? I mean, mm. if you're in a relationship and you've actually normalised abusive behaviours and you've dismissed them as being part of what relationship is like, then I would ask you to really rethink that. Um, and, and that needs to be um, something that we realise. So, for example, here's an, an example of what I mean. So we know that young people between the ages of 12 and 25 are actually the most at risk of relationship abuse, and that might shock some of your listeners, we think of young love as puppy love, as harmless love, but in fact, that's often not true. And amongst the cohort 12 to 25, um, one in four will report elements of their relationship as being abusive. So this matters for a whole range of reasons that I won't go into now, but my point was that one of the things that worries me about that is it normalises dysfunctional relationship, doesn't it? So if your first few relationships have had elements of abuse, whether it be emotional abuse, whether it be control, you start to think, well, that's just what relationships are like. And so then when that happens in your next relationship, even if it's perhaps escalated, it still feels fairly within the realm of normal to you, right? Perhaps in your own home you witnessed abuse. You grew up in an abusive home. And again, you think that that, that that throwing of things, that belittling, that putting someone down, that dictating what they can and can't wear, to you that feels kind of familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to pick up on that because I think a lot of people's first love is their parents. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you, some people, and I've been told this by by women who are in toxic relationships where they've grown up with usually a father, sometimes a mother who is abusive and that that's how they learned love. Mm. And so I've actually had one friend ask me, I feel biologically hardwired to not only see traumatic experiences as an adult as love, but I almost find them attractive. I almost find that toxicity something I'm drawn to. Mm. How do we help people not feel like that? I think by educating them about the fact that this stuff is abuse so that it does feel less normal, right, that can be part of it. I think also for me as someone who also works with parents, it is about explaining to parents that, you know, you can't hit your child and call that love. You know, sometimes we do make the mistake of parents of saying, well, I do this because I love you. I'm only treating you this way because I love you. Right? We should never equate love with violence or abuse. You know, love elevates. I often say to young people, to me, love is like helium. It lifts things up. Everything rises with love. It doesn't use its fists. It doesn't call names. It doesn't put you down. And just because we are parents, that doesn't mean that we are excused from treating our child with great respect. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and honouring that. And and it can be really tough. I've got two kids. It can be really tough sometimes to not smack and to not want to isolate and, and, and all of those things. But we have to dig deep because you're right. These are foundational relationships and they set tone for future relationships. That's not to say if you have grown up in an abusive home, that that's destined to be your path. You know, like I certainly grew up with an abusive dad and that's not been my path. In fact, mm. I have a very good radar um, 
for what I think might become an abusive or a destructive relationship. And I can see the flags from 10 miles off and I don't go anywhere near that, right? But that has also taken some education and some work to understand, well, what are those flags? And, and some self-worth. To go through. Um, I don't believe at all the myth that um, women end up with abusers because they lack self-worth. In fact, most of the mm. survivors I've interviewed are phenomenal women, you know, incredibly confident, incredibly powerful, incredibly, in, in fact, often the research shows that abusers can be very much drawn to women like that, right, because they see that almost as a bit of a challenge or they might initially be drawn to her confidence, drawn to her um, her success and then find that, that that um, challenges their own sense of self and their own insecurities, and they might want to want to bring her down a little bit. So when we ask questions like that, and again, I'm calling you in, mate. I'm not calling you out. Um, it also can be seen as a form of victim blaming. So what we're doing then is we are focusing all of our attention on what could be wrong with the victim survivor rather than the perpetrator. And there are so many things like that, aren't there, where we fall, often with really good intention, into asking questions like, well, why wouldn't they just leave? Or, or why would they go out with these people in the first place? And the truth is the answer to those things is really complex. So one of the things that I really like to do when I'm in a session is to say, look, here we are in this respectful place, and I'm in a respectful place with you now so we can do this, um, Let's just, for the sake of the argument, tease out why might someone find it hard to leave an abuser? What do you think, Mitch? What might be some reasons why, if you're in an, an abusive relationship, it could be hard to leave? Well, I've studied up, so this is an unfair okay. question. And, I, and I, I know that the the least safe time for an experiencer or survivor of, of yep. domestic violence is when they try and leave. Yes, and correct. that is because the perpetrator feels the least sense of control and therefore inflames all of the manifestations of what that relationship or losing that re relationship represents. Um, yep. So her, her not leaving is I'll become more unsafe and he'll become more enraged. Um, my children and my ability to uh, have access to even pets and or kids that I love yep. will be limited. I yep. financially can't afford to do that. Um, yeah. What are the family, what's the family going to think? Um, yeah. And then even, and and this is from my understanding, so call me in if, if that's, this isn't true, but over the course of the abusive relationship, I have started to change my internal narrative around whether I deserve to be free of this relationship. Who am I without him mm -hmm. or her? And yeah. so for a number of reasons, you start to feel like this is my only option. Correct. Spot on. The other reasons can, can include, and this is one that I think, you know, it can be hard for us to come to terms with, but we need to, because you love them, right? Mm. It can be just that simple. You think about it, Mitch, if you are um, with an abusive partner, they don't abuse you on the first date. If they did, that would be easy, wouldn't it? Because you'd go, wow, that person was awful. I'm not going back. They don't. So you have fallen in love with this person and then the abuse begins and it and it might be it might start small it might start with emotional abuse and after there is an incident of emotional not that emotional abuse is small but it might start with a small example of emotional abuse and then after that abuse um after there is an abusive um episode what do you think the partner says i'm so sorry 
that will never happen mm. again. I love you. Gaslighting. Please don't leave me. Well, I mean, I think in that moment it's a desperate plea, right? And so what do we do when we love someone? We want to believe the best in them. We want to believe that they are sorry. And what we also find in the cycle of abuse is that after that episode of abuse, there'll be this honeymoon period where actually um, your partner will treat you beautifully. You know, there might be flowers. There might be a presence. There will be great love and adoration. And then, of course, it will build up to another episode of abuse. So it can be very hard to leave because sometimes we might love this person too. And for all of the reasons you said, you know, financially, you might be deciding do I stay here, which doesn't feel very safe, or do I sleep in the car with the kids? That doesn't feel very safe either. Maybe I'll try and make the best of things here. As you rightly said, you know, they might have convinced you you don't deserve any better. No one else is going to want you. You might feel scared to speak out. They might have isolated you so much you've got no one that you feel you can talk to. Mm -hmm. And that is why all of us who have colleagues, who have friends, need to know what some of the warning signs might be and we need to know how to handle disclosures so we can connect with with people that are experiencing this and redirect them to support so they can go on to live lives beyond this and break this pattern am i true in believing that a a domestic violence survivor can attempt to leave on average between seven to 12 times before successfully departing. Is that correct? It's a really interesting one because we often hear in this sector, the statistic that on average, someone will try and leave seven times before they leave for good. Funnily enough, I just recently wrote a report and I could not find any academic evidence to support this. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's certainly commonly thrown around in the sector, but I'm not Mm. sure of the origins of the statistic. What I would say with certainty from speaking to um, our shelter managers and caseworkers who work with women is that there will be multiple attempts to leave, whether it's seven, you know, I, I don't know where that statistic originally came from, but definitely it can be complex and it can take multiple attempts, which is why, Mitch, one of the first things we should not do if we do have a conversation with someone who shares relationship abuse with us is say to them, you've got to leave this person. Now, it's going to be tempting. You might be thinking it, but if you say that, what you're then doing is trying to control their decision-making, and they Mm -hmm. already know they probably need to leave and they need to work through that process. But more than that, Mitch, if they can't or if they do leave and then go back, they're probably not likely to come to you for support again because they might feel a great sense of embarrassment. I don't know if you've ever done this much, I know I have, where you've got a friend, they break up with someone that you never really liked and then you say to them, you know what, I never really liked that person and then they get back together the next week and it's all shades of awkward (laughs) thinking, I wish I'd never said that. So we need to be really careful that we put our judgment out, um, that we we refrain from passing judgment if if we are given a disclosure. And as a supporter... Am I also right in understanding that it is helpful to ask someone directly, do you think that you're currently experiencing abuse or violence? It depends on the context and the relationship you have with that person. So if it's a work colleague, I probably wouldn't say that. I would follow their lead. The truth of it is too that as much as this might hurt us to know, 
survivors don't owe us their stories. So they might choose to share with us, they might not choose to share with us, and that's okay. It's their narrative to tell when they're ready, to whom they're ready to talk to. But it is really important if you've noticed signs to perhaps talk about those signs. So you might say, hey, I noticed the other day when we went out, your partner seemed really angry that you were home late. Is everything okay? Or or do you feel safe at the moment? So you might, as you said, be really specific about some of the things that you've observed and use that as a launching pad to initiate a conversation. Um, And I think of some of the signs. So some of the signs that someone's experiencing domestic violence and some of the things that we talked about in in the past might include um, you might notice obvious changes in their mood. They might seem more depressed or more anxious or more withdrawn. They might not be engaging with the things socially they used to like to do. So they might drop out of your sporting team or they might not want to do drinks on a Friday night with the girls anymore. You might notice that they seem to always be texting their partner and looking anxious and upset as they're doing that or having to answer a lot of frenzied phone calls. You might notice that um, they... When you ask, you know, how their partner is or what do they do on the weekend, they might sort of seem shut down or quiet about that. You might notice dramatic changes in the way they dress, you know, perhaps dressing more conservatively or changing their sense of style or um, going off social media and sort of saying that that their partner doesn't like it anymore, giving those sorts of um, reasons for that. You might notice that in the workplace that their performance has really changed, that they seem really distracted. So any of these things to me I think of as um, invitations just to have a conversation and check in to see how someone's going, knowing that they might not want to tell you But if they do want to tell you, it's really important that we have the skills to know how to manage that conversation and manage that disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, uh, and those were really helpful, uh, even more warning signs to look out for. My question was less about, hey, I want you to tell me the details of your relationship. Um, I guess my question was more, I was educated that saying to someone, hey, this sounds like domestic violence to me is actually helpful because they might not even say, and this has happened to me previously. I've actually asked someone, do you feel like you're in a domestic violence relationship? Because to me, these these behaviors sound more than just normal conflict stuff. This sounds abusive. And that was really helpful for them to be like, well, I actually never thought about it like that. And I think, that's what I'm in right now. Are they helpful reflections for a supporter to give? Uh, I think it would, again, depend on your relationship with that person Mm -hmm. and your closeness. If it was a close friend, I think you probably could be that candid, right? If it was a work colleague, I I would be reluctant to label that for them. Um, I would be definitely um, letting them take the lead on, on on what they wanted to sort of term that relationship as being like and looking like because that could be really confronting straight up, yeah. But if you've got a close relationship with that person, then you might feel that you can be that candid, yeah. Call me in. I'm going to keep going down this line of questioning because right. um, and I'm, ha- I'm happy for to be pulled up on it, but I feel like, you know, if I go dip into my – my area, which is our area in a way, which is mental health. Um, One thing I advocate for is courage Mm -hmm. and that there's no healing without going toward the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And, And 
I pride my charity heart on my sleeve and me as a speaker is getting up and talking about things that most people don't because we want to feel good when we're listening to, you know, just meditate and walk around the block and everything's fine. Mm. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Like that's not actually true. Before this, before our chat this morning, I was on the phone to a friend and I was like, you know, he's saying work sucks and things going bad. And I go, Hey, I know that you might not want to hear this, but one of the things I value about you most is your ability to straddle the creative and analytical side of your brain. And right now I'm seeing so much talent wither away because you have a unique gift that I feel like the world has to offer. And he's like, Oh, that hurts to hear. Cause I know it's true. And I'm like, good, that's good pain. That's grow pain. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a long way of coming back to this. Yes, I agree at work. We need to be super conscious of professional relationships and boundaries and not putting anyone in a position where they feel like they're forced to justify something personal to you. We agree on that. But I, I'm a fan of things feeling uncomfortable in the service of growth. And I feel like if sometimes it's awkward or confronting to, to get asked, Hey, are you in an abusive relationship right now? That's a growth. That's a discomfort or even a, um, even if they think worse of me as a result of that, and they're like, oh, I don't want to hang out with Mitch. He's like, blah, blah, blah. If that means that our relationship suffers in order for me to potentially interrupt a cycle of, of pattern for them to go, whoa, this requires some thought. And in a way, if there is defensiveness around that question, that's a good signal that we might be in that territory because they know that that's possibly true. So, should we go toward the hard thing in holding up the mirror sometimes in service of growth? You keep asking me this question and I have to just keep deflecting because I think we're talking about different things. This is a really nuanced area with people who are potentially at high risk and um, who may be experiencing a lot of trauma. And so I don't think it's our place to push them. I think it's our place to listen and learn and you don't want to actually risk alienating that person any further from connecting with you. If you are in a discussion with someone that's disclosed to you, the things that I would like you to remember to say to them are, I believe you, you Mm. are not to blame for this and you are not alone. Mm. So by pushing too hard, then you're probably saying unless unless you sort of are prepared to agree with me that that's what this is, then you will be alone, right? So I think if we want to say, you know, I believe you, you're not to blame, you are not alone. In that disclosure moment, it's our job, Mitch, to connect with that person and then to redirect to professional support services. Now, then they may well pose that exact question. So that's probably where that will come in. So it's our job as the friend or the ally to connect and then redirect to professionals, not to try and manage that ourselves. And the professional support services will undoubtedly say, you've told us this, 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 and this, this is relationship abuse. You know, we need to have a conversation about this. We need to get you support. But I do believe that as the friend or the ally that we want to be the connection piece rather than um, the 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 piece that that tries to label what they're experiencing for them. 
I think we're saying the same thing. And it depends also on your with the person yeah I, I don't I don't think we're disagreeing I, I actually think we're saying the same thing also you know yeah. given the context that my whole life is dedicated to helping people understand that connection yeah. is the therapeutic component not the fixing so yes. um I'm not the problem solver guy I'm the opposite of that yeah. I spend my nine to five helping people connect I guess some of this is also coming from my own perspective of supporting a friend out of a domestically abusive and violent relationship yeah. and the impact that took on on them for sure but the pain it was in me seeing someone that I love dearly mm-hmm. and um th- there was no disclosure um because they didn't believe that that's where they were mm. there was no help seeking because there was nothing to seek help for mm-hmm. and it wasn't until we had a frank conversation Mm-hmm. And subsequently, I had to extract them from a house and call emergency yeah. services. And um, in retrospect, they're like, oh, <laughs> that was DV. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm coming from a context of um, of the calling so it out it, being helpful. Yeah, so what I love about you sharing that story with me, a few things, thank you for sharing it. What mm-hmm. I love about that is that you are using your personal experiences to um to share what you've learned in order to help people grow and that can be a really great tool as an ally to use in this so you could use that story you know when you're talking to other um to other males for example you know to explain what you witnessed in terms of the impact of their behavior that even if the partner didn't necessarily label it as abuse it was very clear that it had a devastating impact on them and that you witnessed that impact and it did escalate and to the point where you had to remove them from the house so you've sort of gone on that journey with them haven't you and it's obviously had a, a strong impact on you just as it did. And this is a thing, right? It's the same with mental health issues. There's this ripple effect, isn't it? It doesn't just affect the couple. It affects everyone around the couple as well. Um, and how we feel about whether we did know or we didn't know, whether there were signs, whether there weren't signs. So in that situation, you know, it did take um, your friend by the sounds of things some time to realise and acknowledge what they were experiencing. And that's actually not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, talking about, um, I'd like to lift up the hood a, a little bit if, if you actually, I don't want to go there just yet. I want to round this out to make sure that people have actionable steps. Um, yes. so the, the bit, the biggest thing we can do to help someone in a domestically abusive or violent relationship, whether it's labeled as that or not, simply just understanding someone's level of distress is information enough. Um, I guess the first step is always to listen and to validate. And I love the words, I believe you. I've heard from many mm-hmm. trauma survivors that I believe you is, is the difference between a healing experience and a non-healing experience. Um, and so we listen, we connect, even if we've never been there ourselves. we use curiosity, presence and compassion to explore what their reality is like and to try and understand Um And so I imagine that that's the primary uh, offering you can give Um, and then encouraging them to uh, uh, asking more curious questions around what do you think would be helpful right now? What are you most afraid of? Um, What what role can I play, if any, in supporting you build your plan moving forward? So we're empowering, empowering, empowering instead of trying to take control of that situation, yeah? Yeah, yes, yeah, spot on. And what I think um, 
in terms of an actionable step is that's something we can all do and it's right up my um my alley as an educator is we're talking about the pointy tip of the iceberg if you like we're talking about relationship abuse sexual assault violence but underneath that are a whole lot of gender stereotypes sexist beliefs um that don't serve us and contribute to this culture that allows that to happen right so what we can all do whether we know someone who's in an abusive relationship or not is question that stuff speak out about that stuff because the standard we walk past is the standard we set right and if we call this out then it's less likely to escalate to become normalized to culminate in relationships which are built on um, an imbalance of power and control um, and that can become so destructive and so dangerous. And it, and it does start with the little things and we can't turn a blind eye to those. So that's what I would encourage people to do is to, you know, not laugh at the sexist joke, to call it out. Um, mm. And when you do call out, this is a good tip for you, Mitch, if you do call out sexist behaviour or a sexist joke, own that you find it offensive. Don't put the offence onto the group that's been um, targeted. So, for example, if you saw a group of guys making some sexist comments, you know, rather than say, hey, you shouldn't say that because if the girl's here, they could, be, they could get offended, so much more powerful to say, hey, that's offensive. Not, you know, if, if you say it, those little snowflakey, fragile girls might get upset. You're saying, hey, I find it offensive. I don't think that's cool behaviour. Share some of the things that we've all learnt in our life experiences. You know, some of the stories you've shared about things that have impacted on you with your mates. Talk to them about that. Let them mm. know that this is where this stuff could culminate to be. This is the impact it has on people when we behave in this way. Um, use questions. You know, question people. Why would you be acting that way? Or why do you think that's funny? Or what do you hope to gain by that? Um, and also... Being a good example, you know, in our workplaces, in our homes, being that difference um, and not buying into these outdated sexist stereotypes that don't serve women and they don't serve men either. Mm. I, I know for me it took a long time for me to get comfortable enough in myself and and I almost feel shame that it's taken this long uh, to say, Hey, even to my closest friends or even a complete stranger that I meet and they think it's okay to be like, you know, excuse my language, but that slut, that bitch, mm. fuck her. It took me a longer than I would like to admit to be able to say, nah, we don't do that here, dude. I don't know if you know this, but in like, no, that's not going to fly with me. And thankfully now my friends know just to not go there. Like, and mm. I think part of that is because um, at the end of the day, all men are in relationship to women as mothers, sisters, daughters, etc. And if anyone called my mother or my sister or my girlfriend, those things, uh, I would be irate and I'm sure they would too. But above that, what gives anyone the right to degrade someone to that level, specifically if it's gender loaded in the terminology? Mm -hmm. um, so, so my call to arms there is, guys, if you are listening to this, I get that it could be uncomfortable, but who do you want to be? If you want to be 
a man, a man is being brave and courageous and potentially going against the pack and service to what's right. So I think it's, I think we have to start stepping up more and calling people in, but also calling them the fuck out sometimes. <laughs> sometimes for sure. And also not just honoring and respecting women because they could be our mothers, our sisters, our girlfriends, just because they are human and they're worthy of respect. Yeah regardless of their relationship to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I think I, that was my second part. Yeah, That's yeah, what I tried was. to say. No, I, and I, yeah. no, I get it. I, I get it. And sometimes it might take, um, you know, it might take men a minute to realise that we respect women not just because they are related to us or because they're a particular type of woman. Um, and we also, the other point I will make on that, um, Mitch, is that we don't need men necessarily to be chivalrous either and protect yeah. us. We just want them to respect us. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hope my comment didn't come across as uh, naive in the sense no. of um, I can only understand this because I have females in my life. It's I can understand this because humans inherently of, of value and deserve respect and putting anyone down is not cool, let alone someone based on gender, which is just, it's, it is incredibly um, bad. Uh, so it, where I wanted to go before, if, if, if we can, because I think this part's really important is lifting up the hood on the nuances of sexual interaction because I think yeah. there's a lot of micro things that happen that men don't understand are like not okay. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen amazing campaigns, for example, on the train that like, you know, pressing up against someone in a crowded train is like fucking wrong. And it's amazing that a campaign has to call that out, but like, don't do that. <laughs> don't stare at someone and not break eye contact when you know that they're feeling uncomfortable. Don't look down their top because you're taller than them, at, you know, to an, it's like, yeah fuck, do we really need campaigns around this? But obviously yeah. we do. And I apologize like that almost on behalf of my gender that we do. Um, but uh, enthusiastic consent is is wow. really interesting. And I, I want to talk about consent because I, I also, you know, consent can change at any time. And I'm a big believer in that. Even leading up to this interview, we were talking about some of the things. And I said, whatever we agree on, if that changes at any time, like that's totally fine. Um, yes. Because a yes is only as a yes as long as it is that. And it can become a no. And when it's a no, it's now a no. <laughs> One yeah. yes doesn't mean an always on yes. So um, as a man, I've been... Um, thinking about this and reflecting on this a lot in that like, you know, if I'm in relationship to my, my partner, which is a, a woman or when I'm single, for example, um, I find it um, sexy to sometimes engage in sexual behavior without sitting down and saying, you know, are you comfortable with this now? Do you want this now? And getting an out loud verbal yes sometimes it's nice just to feel the moment and break into sex and, and that be a really natural organic thing. So how do we, what's your perspective on keeping it natural and light and fun and sexy and not over prescriptive, but also having an underpinning of consent at all times? Yeah. And I don't think it's as complex as people 
try and pretend that it might be. And I do believe that sometimes the people that say, oh, it's all outrageous now and we're supposed to ask for it, they just use this as, as an excuse or as a bit of a mask to try and dismiss what's actually a really important and significant discussion that we need to have about consensual relationships and respectful relationships. So can I tell you how we don't want to be teaching this? And that is the way that the federal government tried to with their ridiculous milkshake ad campaign. I don't know if you remember that, but it caused a furor. They spent millions of dollars trying to teach teenagers about consent via an ad that featured a girl throwing a milkshake at a partner and trying to convince him to drink it when he didn't want to. It was nonsense. I think a lot of the time in the past, the mistakes we've made are using a lot of metaphors, particularly when we're talking about this with young people, things like cups of teas or talking about tacos or rather than talking authentically about what um, sexual consent should look and feel like. And I think it's really important and young people have demanded that we be more open than that. So let's be kind of open. All of that being said, I'm not going to use a metaphor, but I am going to use a very well-respected acronym, which is FRIES, all right? And an acronym, for those that don't remember their English, is just a memory technique to remind us of the terminology. So it's freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. And I'll talk you through what all of those mean. So first of all, consent needs to be freely given. What that means is if you say to someone, hey, unless you let me do this with you, I'm not going to drive you home. Obviously, that's not freely given. In a relationship, if you say to your partner, if you don't let me do this with you, I'm going to break up with you. That's not freely given, right? So the person needs to be able to freely give their consent to engage with you, not feel that they are going to lose something or be punished or dismissed in any way if they don't, right? It needs to be reversible. So as you rightly said, you know, you can say yes at the beginning and change your mind at any point and that's okay. And that might sound simply like, hey, I'm not that into it anymore or I'm not really mm -hmm. feeling it, let's take a break, right? It needs to be informed. So obviously your partner can't be, I shouldn't say obviously because clearly it hasn't always been obvious, your partner can't be um, heavily intoxicated. You know, they can't be off their face on drugs. They can't be asleep. They can't be unconscious, right? They need to be able to give informed consent. It needs to be enthusiastic. What that means is just because they didn't say no and they didn't fight you and they didn't try and run away doesn't necessarily mean they've consented. We know that particularly if we feel traumatised, we might freeze up, yeah? Um, and so this means when you're with your partner, you need to basically be, to be a good lover, a good communicator. So you need to be able to read their body language. Like if she looks really frozen and stiff, is she still into it? Maybe just check, right? Mm. If she's shaking, maybe not into it, just check. If she's crying, clearly not into it right? So you need to read your partner's body language. And if in doubt, you ask questions, does this still feel nice? Where would you like me to touch you? Do you want me to slow down? Do you want me to do more? What would feel better, right? So this is just an ongoing dialogue that makes you a good lover. I remember when I was talking to some teenagers about this recently, a girl in year 12 got the giggles and I said to her, what are you giggling at? And she said, oh, I just think I'd be so embarrassed to say those things to my partner. And I said to her, well, with all due respect, then you're probably not ready to have sex yet if you can't mm. have that kind of conversation with your partner. Um, and it needs to be specific. So just because you've said yes to one thing doesn't mean everything's on the menu. So if you want to change from, you know, kissing to oral sex, you just need to check in with your partner again. And it doesn't always have to be, particularly if it's a long-term partner and you're committed doesn't always have to be necessarily a whole discussion. It can be reading their body language, yeah, as well. 
So if mm. they're not really wanting that and they're pulling away or they're trying to like wriggle around the bed so you can't get near that part of their body, pretty good signal they're not really into it. Yep. The difference is too, and I love the example you gave me, Mitch, I had it recently from a teacher as well. It's a great one. You know, when you are in an ongoing relationship especially, I don't think it's realistic that every single time you're going to kiss them or touch them, you're going to have a whole conversation, right? But I do think um, what you also need to be open to is understanding that if you went up, you know, to your partner and you just had given her a big kiss and she wasn't really in the mood and she said, not at the moment, Mitch, you'd be cool with that. You'd be like, oh, fair call, you know. You'd understand that it's still her body, it's not your body and it's her rules and you need to negotiate that those sexual relationships with each other. And so the consent, particularly in an early relationship, I think there should be quite a bit of talk going on, yeah? Mm-hmm. doesn't have to mean you're chatting the whole time, but it's just discussions about learning about your lover. Do you like this? Do you not like this? What do you like? Show me, talk to me. And reading their body and reading their interactions with each other, which does make you a good lover and makes sex better for everyone. So Amen. nothing about this to me is punitive. To me, it's pretty hot. Yep, yep, agree. And, uh, you know... many of my friends know this about me, the biggest compliment a woman can give me, and I'm grateful that I um, have received this a lot and I've I've worked hard to be this person, is um, you feel really safe. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and that is, for me, uh, everything because that's the person I want to be and sometimes it does require a bit more communication than maybe what you're used to Mm. and it means checking in particularly if things are leveling up quickly and it's you know Mm. a new partner it's like Mm -hmm. is this are you comfortable with this is this something you're excited about and yeah some of it's just like don't be read body language have enough eq to be like is this feeling good is this flowing and if unsure just checking in and I'm actually certain that they'll appreciate that they won't see that as a turnoff they'll see that as wow he respects me this is bringing me emotionally closer Um, I love that um and I can imagine you would be a a safe guy you've certainly come across as very respectful um in your dealings with me so far, which I've really appreciated. But I think it's important too to note, and maybe it's sort of almost a nice note to finish on, the truth of it is that the vast majority of guys are safe and respectful. You know, I wrote a newspaper column once about the fact that as a a young girl in my 20s, you know, um, I could be pretty wild at times, Mitch, and there was many occasions where I would be really drunk at nightclubs and thankfully no one took advantage of me. They would get me home safely. Or my mm. male friends would be the ones to say, I think you've had enough, Danny, you need some water, let me drive you home. Um, there would be times where I'd be at parties and I would have a boyfriend who was being abusive and, you know, screaming at me and some guy would come up and go, dude, don't talk to her like that. That's not on. Mm. And so what I think we need to do is normalise the good guy stuff, the respectful stuff, yeah, because not all men, but enough men do the wrong thing. And those good guys need to be more vocal and they need to be more celebrated. And we need to acknowledge so that the standard, the community standard becomes that that this is what we expect. And this is actually what the majority are already doing. You're the one that's the outlier behaving this way. Mm. Yeah. So um, before we close up, I just want to say how grateful I am for all of this. And it's not your role um, as a woman, nor your role as a survivor to have to educate men and me 
but you've chosen to do that and given me your time. Um, so thank you very much for, for that. Um, and I, I know that this is going to be helpful to a lot of people. So the way I like to, to close out is, um, a, qu- a few quick rapid fire questions. Okay. <laughs> so, um, if you had, uh, access to a billboard over the main highway, let's say I'm in Sydney and you could put one thing on that billboard, what would it say? I don't know. I'm not good at rapid fire questions and I'm going to acknowledge that because oh, you know okay. what? I, you know why? No, I'm happy to play though, but if I don't know, I'm going to say I don't know. And you know why? Because I think we live in a culture, probably thanks to Twitter, where we're all asked to form an opinion and get it out there in a few seconds without actually reflecting and contemplating. And I think um, that is such a if – a, if I had a billboard over a highway – Man, I would probably spend weeks thinking about what I wanted it to say because that is an amazing site for exposure. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that I would come back to you on my uh, my billboard marketing pitch. You know what? That's a hundred times better than answering the question because what it's just displayed is a you setting a boundary, b yeah. me reframing that I could have asked you that question by saying, hey. I hope I can ask you some rapid fire questions. How do you feel about them? I didn't. I said I I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. I, I don't. Hey, it's, I'm, it's all, I'm okay with you good. asking them, but I will say that if I don't know, I'll say I don't know because you know what? I wish the world would do that more often. I one mm. of my pet um, hates Mitch is that we live in this culture where people just fire shit off and they do it on Twitter all the time. They don't think. They don't reflect. Um, and, and I think we should reflect and we should pause sometimes before we, before we preach. Yeah. Amen. Um, okay, so you're comfortable to get a Yes, a go again. And if, I, and, if I, and if I don't know the answer to the next one, we'll give up on this game, but we'll try okay. one more time. Okay, one more. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a mantra that you live by? Yes, there is. So there you go. We're lucky. Um, and it's quite beautiful, I think. And can I tell you a little bit about why it's become my mantra? Mm. My mantra, and I'm going to feel teary telling you this because it touches me in a very deep emotional way, is simply you'll be okay. You'll be all right. Mm. When I was little, Mitch, I was burnt. As I said to you, I've got third-degree burns. And I spent six months in hospital as a little girl at two all by myself in that hospital room. And back then, I'm 52, the treatment was quite primitive. You know, I couldn't have my mum with me all the time or my dad. I was alone a lot of the time. And for whatever reason, um, and it probably saved me, I remember that was my mantra. You know, I would lay there. Mm often in excruciating pain because burns are incredibly painful. And back then there wasn't really a lot of um, treatment and I had to have four surgeries. But I would say to myself, you'll be okay, you'll be all in this really soothing voice. I suspect it was the voice of a nurse who perhaps would say that Mm. to me and then that became my inner voice, my internal voice. But it has remained my inner voice, you know, my internal voice. And it's... um. It makes me emotional because it is so healing and so caring. Um, mm. And it's and to me, it's an inner voice that mothers me. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And <laughs> I'm so glad that, that that little girl who still lives inside of you in some way yeah. is hearing that from your adult self. Um, 
Totally. Taking I think care of her. Become, for me anyway, I became the adult that I needed when I was little. Yes. Yep. And what an adult that is, Danny. Oh. <laughs> um, you're a beautiful, beautiful human Thank and you. Um, an incredibly strong and insightful uh, human being and you help a lot of people every day and we need more people like you in the world. So appreciate this. And if uh, people want to reach out or get in contact with you, is social media the best place to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I wear a few different hats. I work, my own company is in Latin education and we work in schools on wellbeing and respectful relationships. But I also am the director of education for women's community shelters who do incredible work on domestic and family violence and run that corporate training. So they can contact me on any of my socials. I'm a big LinkedIn fan and very active on there. Or they can contact me by women's community shelters as well. Fantastic. And we'll put all that in the show notes. Um, so Danny, see you soon. Bye. Thanks so much, Mitch. It was really beautiful. My emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along. So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then it begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind to relax and settle away itself.